I want to get to our text today. It's from Exodus 32. Um, Exodus 32, 1 through 6. You can go ahead and turn to that text. And it will be, we'll be discussing the sin that so easily entangles us. Before we get there today, I would like to pray and ask God to just meet with us this morning. Lord, you are so good and you are so holy. Lord, we are but a speck of dust in the spectrum in the in the in the whole idea of existence, Lord. We're a speck of dust. We're nothing. We're a breath, as Moses says. A wind that passes through. But in your goodness, you look down upon us with love. I am still blown away. I am still blown away by the fact that I am nothing and yet you love me. I am still blown away from the fact that in our only interaction with each other, I choose to abandon you and yet you choose to draw near to me. You are the perfect husband. You are the perfect friend. You are the perfect father. Lord, I sit here today as a changed and just a completely different person than I know that I would be without this reaching down, without this love, without this care, without you meeting with us. And I am overwhelmed with gratitude because of that. Lord, may we never forget. May we never be so easily drawn away from that story, from that love. That we would run away from the sin that so easily entangles us. And draw near to the merciful Father of grace. Lord, we love you so much and we praise you. Speak to us, meet with us this morning that we may be changed and that the world might be changed through our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We come back to another narrative in the book of Exodus and I don't, I don't know about you, but these narratives, and I, I know I've said this probably a million times, but these narratives are, are really tracking with me. I don't, I don't think you're going to be disappointed again today in this narrative that we are in. You may be wondering, Bryce, Blake spoke on Exodus 24, 1-18 last week. Why are you speaking on Exodus 32? It seems like, if my math is correct, there are a few chapters missing. The simple answer to that is that I skipped them. That's the simple answer. I do think that all Scripture is profitable. And, and you can get a study Bible and study the profitability of Exodus chapters 25 through 31 on your own. 
But I think our time together would be best served by giving you an overview of those things and moving on to Exodus. So what is happening in Exodus chapters 25 through 31? Well, Moses is up on Mount Sinai and the Lord is giving him two overarching regulations and guidelines to follow. The Lord is giving Moses instructions for the tabernacle. The gist of it is that the tabernacle will be Mount Sinai dwelling amongst the people. Do you get that? Do you get the, remember the imagery from Mount Sinai, right? The smoke, the clouds, the thunder, the lightning, the voice of the Lord. Off of Mount Sinai and dwelling with the people. And so in order to contain this, in order to, to do this right, the Lord is giving Moses regulations and rules and guidelines and instructions on how the Lord will literally tabernacle with his people. He will be with them. His presence will be with them. It's weird to say the Lord tabernacles amongst His people, right? It's kind of a weird way to say it. But this is just what it is. The word tabernacle means a fixed or movable habitation, a dwelling place. The Lord is giving Moses instructions on how to build him a house, a home amongst His people. This theme is carried along to Jesus. Remember, we studied it when we studied John. Right? The Lord became flesh. The Word became flesh. And what? Dwelt. He literally tabernacled among them. And we beheld His glory as the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. Literally, Jesus is God dwelling, tabernacling among us. So Moses is giving instructions The Lord is giving instructions to Moses on how the Lord will tabernacle amongst His people. He's also giving instructions on the priesthood, who they are, what they do, what their garments look like, what tasks they will perform. Of course, we know the the first high priest and spiritual leader of the people is who? It's Aaron. Which in the context of the story is the definition of irony. Right? The Lord is up on Mount Sinai with Moses and he's saying, here is what Aaron should look like. And Aaron is saying, here is what worship is going to look like at the bottom of the mountain. Without the call of the Lord. Without the discretion of the Lord. This is a whole different sermon altogether and I'm not going to get into it. But Aaron let the culture dictate worship of God instead of letting the God of worship dictate what worship looked like. There's a lot of churches that are pre-Sinai or mid-Sinai Aaron's leading them. Have a lot of mid-Sinai Aaron's leading them. So Moses is up on the mountain. The Bible says 40 days. And if you're a skeptic like Blake, I'm just kidding. The Bible says 40 days. uh, And so it could be 40 days. It could be around six weeks. We, We don't know exactly the time. It's just a number around that time. A short time nonetheless. You know, we turn around, we wake up in the morning, and a month has gone by, right? I mean, it's a short time period. So let's look at chapter 32 and see what begins to happen. 
The people saw Moses uh, gone, that he took a little time on the mountain. And they weren't really privy to Moses' movements. It wasn't like the Lord was saying, Moses is going to go up for 40 days and then he will come back. You know, he wasn't speaking from the heavens probably exactly Moses' itinerary. They couldn't call Moses' secretary and figure out what was going on. So Moses took a little bit of time on the mountain. They only saw Moses when he went up and when he came down and when he spoke to them for the most part. So as Moses delays, they get restless and they go to Aaron. Now, the lead pastor is gone at this point, so they go to the worship pastor for advice. And, and really, we know that that's a bad idea in all, all scenarios. Because at that point, you'll start wondering if it's 40 days or six weeks. Or... So they go and they convince the worship pastor, Aaron, to step up. This is a coup of all coups. And Aaron, I mean, they're not just saying, Aaron, be our temporary leader, right? The, the implication is, is that they're saying, Aaron, Moses is gone. He is delayed. He may be dead. He may not be. He may have vamped out. He may have thought Egypt was better. We may have convinced him that Egypt was better, and he went back. Will you lead us? I think they genuinely believe that they were replacing Moses. If you ever do this, remember the result of this story, okay? Just remember. So Aaron, out of fear or maybe a sense of leadership, tells the people, take off your rings. Take off your earrings. Take off your necklaces. Give me your gold. And Aaron takes their gold and he melts it down. He puts it in a cast of wood. And he casts, he forms an object. And then he takes his graving tools and he graves it. He engraves it or he forms it again into a, a calf for them. The people began to worship the golden calf and, and they say, These are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And Aaron builds an altar and he proclaims a feast to the, it's weird, to the Lord, to Yahweh. And the people played, the Bible said. The people played. It's interesting. We'll talk about that more later in a different sermon, but the people played. I've expressed this to you before, but my first inclination when looking at a story like this is to look at it with a judgy mentality. How are all of these people so stupid? They can't go for 40 days without making an idol. Can they not go for 48 days without mentioning how great they had it in Egypt? Again, they're doing it. Moses is probably thinking, quit telling me how great you had it in Egypt and stop referring to me as your step leader. Sorry, that was a Facebook joke that no one laughed at. It's okay. There have been many times as a pastor I've sort of felt like this. People have come up to me and, and I don't really think anyone in this room, but they've come to me and they said how great their last church was. Or how they did it at their last church. And my first inclination is, why aren't you there? And my second, and I really believe this, is to say, go find some place like it. Because we won't be that for you. But I digress. 
So Moses is up meeting with God at Mount Sinai, establishing their faith, their worship practices, and the people, are, people of God at, are at the foot of the mountain establishing their own self-righteous man-made worship practices. The more I grow in the faith, the more I look at stories like this differently. And instead of looking at them in a judgmental way, I see myself. I can't help but see all the times that God has been so faithful to me. And how he's established a perfect plan for my life. And for me, it is so easy to follow. It's set up for me. This is what being set upon a rock means. And then I just simply go back to the easy things in life and follow them instead. It's easy to fall back into a life of sin nature. The Bible calls it the sin that what? So easily entangles us. We see this reference in Hebrew, and it really is sort of referencing <coughs> the story of uh, the story that we see in Exodus. But Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. I believe in Hebrews that the Lord is looking back. Hebrews 12, the Lord is looking back at the glory cloud at Mount Sinai and He's saying, remember the work that Jesus has done that you don't grow so easily, go so easily back to your sin nature and grow so easily weary or faint-hearted. This is our natural propensity though, right? If you're honest with yourself, to revert back to sin nature, to revert back to our fallen state. This is why for a Christian there is really only one option for your life. It is walk in the Spirit. It's not choose God or not. It is choose God or stay in your flesh. Walk in the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, and you will not succumb to the things of the flesh. But let your spirit life slip, and the flesh is the natural state that you stay in or revert back to. There is no holding pattern in the Christian life. We are either progressing in the Spirit or we are regressing. And even while we regress, we can look spiritual. But it is only because we are running on spiritual fumes. We've all been here before. I have been here before. Some things I know in this time, it's difficult to lead a church when your life is running on spiritual fumes. It's difficult to be a part of a church, as you should, when your life is running on spiritual fumes. So we look for solutions, and they typically come in answers from the flesh, just like we see in our story today. This is where the people are. They are in what they think is a holding pattern, but what the Lord calls regression in the faith. He calls it sin. And instead of pursuing God while they wait, instead of patiently waiting on the Lord, who was the God of the plagues, the God of the Red Sea, the God of manna, the God of all of these provisions, instead of waiting on Him for what they didn't know, but for 40 days... They regress. 
I want to spend the last of our time today looking at how the people of God responded in the flesh and how they went back to sin, the sin that so easily entangles them and how we often do the same. We talked about this as we talked about um, Exodus 12, I think. I think we... I don't remember now. I should have written it down. We talked about this earlier in Exodus. But the first point I want to give you today is they worshiped the right God in the wrong way. Remember what Aaron said? Aaron said, tomorrow we will celebrate and we will have a feast to the Lord. He literally says to Yahweh. These are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. They were worshiping what God had done. In Exodus 32, the people asked for something to worship. They wanted something tangible to look at, to feel, and to be able to go to. And Aaron obliged. He made a graven image for them. And they all said, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. These are the ones who have rescued us. They knew of their rescue. They relished in their rescue. But they looked to the wrong, or they, they chose to look to the wrong type of worship to pinpoint their praise. How do we know that they worshipped the right God in the wrong way? They broke the commandments of God in their worship. One way you can recognize that you're worshipping the right God in the wrong way is if you have to break the commands of God in your worship. You can't break commands, the commands of God and worship Him rightly. How do we know they broke the commands of God? Well, for one thing, they broke the first command by assuming a polytheistic rescue. These are the gods. You shall have no other god before me. They broke the first command. They also broke the second command. What did Aaron pull out of his back pocket? Why did he still have them? He pulled out his graving tools. I'm sure they were regular sort of carpentry or masonry tools or whatever. But he pulled out his graving tools and he made a god for them. They broke the second commandment. You shall have no what? graven images. That seems pretty plain to me. They made a cast out of wood. They melted the gold and they formed it into a calf. And Aaron uses graving tools for the fine details. There is another implication here and I'll get to it a little bit next week. But they also broke the seventh command. What's the seventh command? What's the seventh command? Do not commit adultery. There's implication that they broke the seventh command. Do you think, what do you think play means? Do you think that they were, oh, let's, let's play soccer. You know, you think that's what it means? Let's play a game. No. It, the implication here is they worshipped like the pagan people worshipped with debauchery and fornication and all of those things that lead to sexual sins. That's how the pagans worshipped. That's what they were accustomed, accustomed to in Egypt. And that's what they did here. You can't break the commands of God and worship Him rightly. You can't worship God properly and do His will if in the formula sin exists. Sin will always be there on some level because we're fallen. But if you have to sin to get something or do something, then it didn't come from God, it came from you. You shouldn't have to lie to get what you need in life. And then say, praise God for this promotion. But I lied and I deceived my way all the way to the top. 
You shouldn't have to lie to get a husband or a wife or in a relationship or to be friends with people. You shouldn't have to deceive. And then you say, praise God for my close friends while you're living in deception. If you have to lie to attain, it doesn't come from God. It comes from you. And it's not worship to give him credit for it. It's called blasphemy. The Lord hates sin. And he will not use unredeemed sin as a means of getting his desired result. Here's what I mean. The Lord will use our past. The Lord will use past sin and past circumstances to get us where we need to be. But he will not use it as a means of getting us to where we need to be. He will not intentionally write sin into the formula. Another way they know, we know that they worshiped the right God in the wrong way is they elevated the man, Moses, to the same level or above God. They said, they didn't say, where is God? Where is the Lord? Where is he right now? They said, where is Moses? Where is Moses? He's been gone for a while. Moses has been delayed. Their hope was pinned up in the man Moses. How many times do we place our faith and our sanctification on our closeness with our pastor, other spiritual leaders, or other spiritually strong people? I think it's important to be close to those people. But how many times do we place, do we hinge our faith on that? I can't tell you how many times I've heard, well, Bryce, when we were spending more time together, things were better. I felt connected. Sometimes, sometimes people don't just come out right out and say it, but they feel it. Yes, unity with God does come from being around the saints of God. But our closeness with the pastor doesn't make us a better Christian, just like knowing a professional athlete doesn't make us a better athlete. You don't draw closer to God strictly by leaning into his saints, but by putting your trust in God himself, even in times that it is just you, when you feel like it's just you and that's all you have to depend on. They leaned heavily into God's man and not God himself, and that was a major problem. In moments of busy schedules and crazy lives, we can really see how much we trust in the Lord and how much we are depend or how much we are dependent on the person. Because when our life gets out of whack and when we can't be as close to the church, when we can't be as close to our Christian friends, what does our spiritual life do? I mean, naturally there's a dip, but does it does it just go into the basement? Does it go into the cellar? You can tell how much you're depending on man if it does. They did something else. They syncretized their religion with another. And there was a little confusion because I used this word a couple weeks ago and I want to clarify this for you. Not synchronized, syncretized. Syncretized means the joining of two sort of opposite things. They can be, they can be the same thing, but in this instance, it's opposite things. They joined their old religion, Egypt's religion, with their new religion. Their spiritual life was often still in Egypt. And like returning to those sins that so easily entangled them and us, they went back to the norm or what was easy. This is what worshiping God in Egypt looked like. Now, what Mo- now, now that Moses isn't around, we are here to figure it out on our own. So if Moses isn't here to tell us what to do, if God is not speaking out to tell us what to do, 
Let's just do it. And so we go back to what's natural. We go back to what's easy. We go back to what we know instead of what we've learned. We go back to what we're told by man instead of what God tells us. We do this when we bring too much psychobabble into our spiritual lives. I think there is a place. But when we bring too much into our spiritual lives, when we bring too much of the world's culture into our spiritual lives, a big one is, the big way that we do this when we syncretize our religion with the Lord's religion, is when we live a life of licensure. We forget that license to sin is what God has saved us from, and we walk with our non-Christian friends as if we were still pagan and didn't trust a God who saves. We sometimes call it Wrongly call it relational or missional. And I'm not making fun of those terms because those are terms that I use. But it is really an excuse to synchronize our old pagan life and our new life with Christ and say, look how sanctified I'm making these things. I am being the gospel. Again, friends, let me tell you, the Lord does not use sin to accomplish His will. He does not use the syncretization of another religion with the religion of Christ to to accomplish His will. It is not relational or missional or gospel if sin is required to get it done. As Christians, our lives cannot look more pagan or the same as they did before salvation, or before spiritual maturity than they do when we say, I belong to God, but my life still belongs to me. If we do this, we stun our growth. If we do this, we the worst, the worst, like millstone around your neck, worse. If we do this, we cause others to stumble in a way sometimes that is irreparable. They worship the right God in the wrong way. They also went back, this is the second thing, they also went back to the idols that they had never fully relinquished. They had never really relinquished. The sin that so easily entangles us. They worshipped a calf, probably taking a cue from the Egyptian god Apis that was a bull worshipped primarily in Memphis, Egypt. He was a manifestation of Ta, a creator god. Now I've said this some already, but it isn't uh, isn't this our natural position in life? We, we lose direction or purpose and we go back to the things that come easiest. And, and then we can see, uh, convince ourselves that since we are Christians that those things are somehow now sanctified or they're somehow now Christian acts. Often we justify sinful behavior saying these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. We convince ourselves that we can go back to the things of the old life because now that we are sanctified, the rules don't apply to us. One of the greatest sins of a new believer and any believer is going back to sins that we never truly got rid of in the first place. I can drink a little more because I have Jesus. 
I can talk in an unwholesome way because overall my life is sanctified. We think because we read our Bible and pray and we're a part of a church that excuses poor treatment of others. It excuses lying or deception or racism or ethnocentrism or any other um, ism that you want to add into there and some isms that you shouldn't add into there. We compartmentalize our sin and assume that because our heart has been saved that our sin does not need to be redeemed. The sin of God's people was not that they made a calf, but that the idolatry of Egypt was still in their hearts. Friends, the sin is not in the refrigerator, and it's not what comes from your lips. It's not in the actions how, in how you treat others. The sin is in our hearts. We must constantly fight to restrain our flesh and not indulge our heart, which, which Calvin said was a factory of idols. Acts 7.39 says this about our story. Our fathers refused to obey him, but listen, they thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned Back to Egypt. The reason is because sin is not what we do, but it is who we are. And until we mortify our flesh and we die daily in Christ, it is what we will be. Our heart is a factory of idols. And when we turn from God, we must have an object and our heart's desire becomes the object, the false God. It makes it so difficult as a Christian because we, become, we come to Christ and we hold on to those old sinful desires and we just Christianize them a little bit. We just polish them up a little bit. And we say, look what God has done for me. They worshiped the right God in the wrong way because they had never relinquished a heart for Egypt. Friends, what we can know for sure is if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Don't stop there. What does it say? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We must mortify our flesh. We must surrender our old life to God before we can worship Him clearly and cleanly in this new life. They worshiped the right God in the wrong way because they had never relinquished their heart for Egypt. They had a distrust for the lawgiver. That's number three. They had a distrust for the lawgiver. We know from our catechism that sin is what? Thank you. That was horrible. If if I were Stephen, an MC, I would say, what again? Sin is any transgression of the law of God. Sin is breaking the law of God, but it is so much worse. Sin is not just breaking the law of God, but it is a distrust for the law giver. Sin is a distrust for the law giver. Sin says, God, we know better. 
We have a better plan for our life. We have a better way. When we drink or over-medicate, we are telling God, when we overdrink or over-medicate, we are telling God His peace is not enough. Here's my plan for peace. When we beat ourselves up over past, over our past sin, over our past life, or even present sin, we say, God, Your grace is not good enough to handle the sin in my life. But I've got this. I'll take care of what's going on in my life. So I'll just keep self-deprecating. I know a better way than Your salvation, Lord. I know a better way than You've provided. Sin is not only a real problem because it breaks the law of God, but because it's a real problem because it tells the lawgiver, it tells God, you don't need him. God, your plan for marriage is not good, so I'll test drive people until I find the right one. Your plan for my financial future is not good, so I will work my life away until I don't have a life anymore. To give me what you haven't given me. I'm not going to trust you for my finances, so I'll hoard them and make sure that I'm that I have something to will out to my family instead of being generous. Now, God, I don't trust you in my marriage, so I will make my own conclusions about it. I'll make my own decisions about what I should do, regardless of what your law, your commands say. Sin is telling God that He may be good enough for others, but not for you. It's as simple as that. The people of God spat in, the, spat in the face of God by saying, this calf is what brought us to this point. Not the presence of God that was hovering just over their heads. Just a short distance away. And we look at it and we criticize, but how often do we do the same? How often do we, got, do we abandon what got us here for a substitute that we think will get us the rest of the way. When we sin, we're not only, not only breaking the commands of God, but we're telling God we don't trust Him and we don't need Him. And that is why sin is egregious. They had a distrust for the lawgiver. And then on the same line, and this is the last thing today, they made idols of their blessings. Friends, how do we know that we're worshiping how do we know that we're making idols? How do we know that we're worshiping uh, God in the wrong way or worshiping another God? One sure way is when we make an idol of our blessings. They made idols of our blessing. Someone tell me, I want to hear it with your mouth, what did they make the calf out of? Their gold, that was good, specifically. Their rings, their earrings, their jewelry. Anybody catch this in reading this? Anybody catch the neatness, uh, the, 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 the underlying thing here? Look back at Exodus 12 really quickly. Look back, look back, what are you saying? Go ahead. It's the same gold that when the people of God found favor with the Egyptian neighbors, it was giving to them. Bonus points for anybody who could say what, was, what that gold was to be used for. It was to be used to build the tabernacle and the things around the tabernacle. It was to be used. God so generously, man, y'all just took a whole point away. God so generously gave to them so that what? They could generously give back to God. 
They took the rings. They took the jewelry. Look at Exodus 12. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough, uh, they took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls before bound up. Sorry, Exodus 34, I didn't, uh, 12, 34, I didn't tell you. Bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. <coughs> The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so they they let them have what they asked. They plundered the Egyptians. Remember, this was like pre-war plundering, right? Whatever terminology I used when we were going through it. They plundered them without ever having to fight them. As insane as it sounds, the people of God use the blessings of God to practice idolatry. Why is it worse? Because Moses was getting the proper instructions at the same time for how they were actually supposed to use that gold and that silver. How they were to use it to make a dwelling place for the Lord. The Lord had blessed them so that they could bless God by giving it back as an offering. And instead, they used the blessing of God to make an idol. Woo! That's a slap in the face to God, but man, that should be a a wake-up call to you. When God blesses us with financial prosperity and we find ways to hoard hoard it or we center our life around getting more instead of becoming more generous, we become more stingy. We slap slap the face of God by using his blessings to only bless ourselves and therefore making idols of ourselves. Rather than using the gifts of For God's glory, they are used to make idols. This is not just seen in financial blessings, though. When politicians and pastors and people in general use the name of God to get what they want, they're doing the same thing. When a politician says, God bless, or God bless America, or I'm a Christian, and and, and they're using it as a means, a platform, they are doing the same thing. Thing. They are using the blessings of God and salvation to get something they want. When a pastor um, um, holds that he is a pastor over his congregation, when he uses his power to manipulate and to uh, have his congregation do what they want, he is doing the same thing. And when we as people say, the Lord told me. Now I think the Lord speaks to us and I think he speaks clearly. But when we start telling other people that the Lord told me this for you, I'm like, bro, red flag. When someone says for me about something that's going on in my life, I have a peace about this. Like, oh, now I have your approval. Thank you. I don't, I don't. If we are walking in the spirit, we don't need the approval of a friend. It's good to have. The advice is good to go to. But when you say the Lord told me, what you're saying is, I have a knowledge. You might not be intentionally saying this, but what you're saying is, I have a knowledge that you don't have, that I would like to give you, that came from God, that you couldn't ascertain on your own, that you couldn't get on your own from the Lord. It is manipulation, is what it is. It is manipulation. The Lord speaks to us. 
And I think we should tell our friends what the Lord says. And if we have advice from, if we have advice to give our friends, if we have good words to give our friends from God, we should absolutely share them. It is the way the Bible is written. It is the way God prescribes unity in the in the body. But we shouldn't use spiritual power to influence decisions, to influence people's lives in a way that even we want the result. When we use the blessings of authority to manipulate and maneuver people to do what we want, we are making an idol of the blessings of God. We also do this by overindulging in the blessings of God. Instead of becoming giving and loving, we become Scrooge McDuck with our money. Thinking we are being responsible all the while we're being selfish. This is what happens when we worship the gift and not the giver. I will close with this. Ultimately, they made the calf because it required no mutual responsibility. This is not a point. It's just a thing to think on. It required no mutual responsibility. R.C. Sproul said this, The cow gave no law and demanded no obedience. It had no wrath or justice or holiness to be feared. It was deaf, dumb, and impotent. But at least it could not intrude on their fun, man. And call them to judgment. This was a religion designed by men, practiced by men, and ultimately useless to men. Worship of idols and worship of ourselves requires no mutual responsibility. We get to tell our God how it is, have no commitment to our God, and we get to make up what the commands should be. It is self-worship at its finest. The reason we make idols in our own lives is because we are not responsible to anyone or anything when we do. The reason we fall back to sin, fall back into sin in our lives is because we are only, we feel, we are only responsible to ourselves at that moment. The reason we stay in sin is because we've gone so long being responsible to ourselves that when God, either directly or through others, brings us to conviction, we don't want to hear it. We'd, better, we'd rather be reclusive. We'd rather stay away. Friends, I want to tell you that the Lord has tabernacled among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And it is, it should be, but is often not enough to keep us with him every day and forever in the sense of us following him. We must remember the mighty work of his hand. We must mortify sin, the sin of our flesh, and surrender our lives to him as our only God to worship. When we sin, when we fall away, when we draw away, we must draw back to the people that love us. We must draw back to the only God that can save us. Pray with me today. Lord, you are good and you are holy and we are enamored by that. We are knocked down by that truth. Lord, help us to always be 
changed, to be amazed, to be in love with the truth that you love us so richly that you would send your son to die for us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to purchase us a place in heaven, to give us eternal life. Lord, help us to repent daily, believe the gospel, and follow you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.